Believe it or not, and I think you will, we're in the middle of a revolution, a global revolution, uh, technological information revolution. And a lot of really powerful people don't like it one bit. We have witnessed the collapse of state and institutions uh, from corporations to systems of government the elites have lost control journalists have lost power academics have lost power and control the old status quo is under attack or destroyed and it's happening all over the world and the new uh, status quo is chaotic and aggressive every day it seems like there's another battle being fought The public revolt against the elite class has shattered every domain of authority. We don't trust any institution anymore. And that's not just an American thing. Now the elites are scrambling to maintain power. They flourished under the industrial society. But now as a result of the information revolution, it has been gutted of its legitimacy with no signs of recovery, only a power grab or something else that is yet to be defined. The elites want us to believe that our issues are economic, better yet, socioeconomic, because that's even more divisive, a better diversion. But the real issues is with the elites themselves. The real problem is corruption. And all of it has happened as a result of the Internet. Not the corruption, but the exposure and the networking with one another. Elites can no longer hide their failures and their corruption, nor can they silence people easily. When we finally saw the elites for who they really are, we were really kind of disgusted, both the Republicans and the Democrats, by their lack of morality. It's why 50% of the public says, I don't belong to either party. The public has become ungovernable at least from the elites perspective martin gurry was a media analyst for the cia as all of this was unfolding early in the 21st century he saw this shift up close and he understands media theory i think at a higher level than most academics Uh, he bests them in practical knowledge and he has uh, the perfect message that america needs to understand the understanding the new american oligarchy or whatever it is that is on the other side of this thing i found him by reading uh his book the revolt of the public and the crisis of authority in the new millennium it foreshadowed all of this it was written in 2016 but i find it extraordinarily timely It is a very fair book, a balanced book, and one that I think everyone who's trying to figure out what's coming, uh, that you read it. I wanted to go through a little bit of the book with him, but also expand and go beyond that. I think this book is really crucial for everyone to read. He was way ahead of his time. And you don't want to miss a minute of this podcast because we talk about the reasons why all the chaos is unfolding around us. What Martin says relates directly to what's happening in your life. And his greatest concern for the future of liberal democracy is something that should concern all of us. In fact, it should make all of us break out in a cold sweat because it's real we're seeing it now and if it grows to an uncontrollable strength god help us all please welcome martin gurry martin it is rare for me to read a book that I can't sense the political agenda, because I don't think there is one with you. Um, I, uh, I don't know much about the author, except uh, he really seems open to being wrong and open to just learn. Uh, that is rare uh, today. And I can't thank you enough. I wish I would have read your book in 2016 when it first came out, because it has answered so many questions 
on what's happening in our world right now. So first, welcome. Um, let me let me I, I want to first get you to start with the premise of the book. So describe it for anybody who hasn't read it yet. Well, the book was kind of a journey. So let me just kind of tell you a story about how the book came to be, because it pretty much encapsulates that. I was a um, an analyst of global media at CIA, possibly the, the least sexy job you could have at CIA, right? Um, but, but at that moment, it turned out to be um, the most significant perch probably in the world to be sitting at, because I had been... Um, obviously dealing with very, very small volumes of information. In those days, uh, open media was a tiny, tiny trickle. And I was there when suddenly this digital earthquake, epicenter, say, Palo Alto, um, suddenly propelled this tsunami of information in volumes that were unprecedented in human history. Okay, I want to uh, stop here because I, I want to write uh, read what you actually write because it is profound the way you put this. More information was generated in 2001 than all of the previous existence of our species on Earth. In fact, 2001 doubled the previous total and 2002 doubled the amount present in 2001. That is astounding. Correct. So what we're going through, I've been saying for a while that we're going through a revolution like the Industrial Revolution, except this one is just compressed, not over 100 years, but a period of like 10 or 20 years. And everything seems like it's coming apart at the seams. This was a really important place to start. Talk about that and then continue with your story. Talk about what this information explosion means. Right. And I mean, it's it's that doubling every year has continued. Jeez. So um, it, it, if you chart it, it really looks like a, a gigantic wave. It looks like a tsunami. So I speak a lot about the information tsunami. That's a metaphor in a way. But when you look at the chart, it looks like a tsunami, like this thing that just keeps rising. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with you in the sense that it's being compressed. I think we are in the very early stages of it. In other mm. words, I think we're just seeing, the, we're only seeing the very initial uh, shock, I guess, trauma, uh, that the collision of this old hierarchical 20th century top-down i talk you listen world with this enormous information tsunami and and the implications that it has for the legitimacy and the authority of every institution including all our democratic institutions so um i was sitting there watching this happen uh with many others uh uh at cia and of the first thing that we responded to was what you responded to, which was, holy mackerel, this is vast. Mm -hmm. we're, used to, we're, lo we're used to looking at France as being mainly two newspapers. Suddenly, it's like this enormous range of stuff, all of it very ori original. But who are these people? What, how could we even cite them uh, in the Arab world, in Egypt? Um, I mean, the Egyptian media was this tiny little thing, all Mubarak all the time, right? Right. So Suddenly you get all these, and, and serious, boring, suddenly you get these <laughs> bloggers, you know, bloggers who blogged in English because at that time uh, there, there wasn't any software for Arabic in blogging, and were hilarious, and we're all against the system. I mean, and you were reading this and going, what is this, right? So at first we were just overtaken by the size of the tsunami, but something most people don't really think about much, it's the effects that have mattered. Information has effects. It changes mind. It changes the furniture for the drama of society. So the behavior is going to be different because your 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 stage settings are different. Um, so, it, well, I mean, isn't that the isn't that the really the driving force of having a CIA? Knowledge and information is power. I mean, if, yeah. if information I mean, can can free, and in some ways, it. It feels like uh, it can also enslave you if you're if you're just you're hit by a tsunami of it. 
Well, I mean, I think it orients you, and I think it can disorient you. Yes. I think we're, yes. we're, we're in a very disorienting moment. Right. And I think CIA, uh, in my experience of it was, is very tactical. And what I'm talking about is, is global and strategic. I mean, this is just happening all over the world, all the time, every institution practically practically every human life today has been transformed okay um so behind that tsunami we suddenly saw massive increases in social and political turbulence and it all sounds very naive today because it all seems like it's intuitive but at the time we asked well, what's one thing got to do with the other you know mm -hmm. you have the internet we have the internet a communications device and we have all this political turmoil why <laughs> the two <laughs> right. Right. So that's that's become much clearer. When I left government, I dedicated myself to researching the subject, uh, and and what became clear to me was that our institutions, of the the, the great institutions of the, of the 21st century, including our political or democratic institutions, were set up, received their shape, their form, their substance, their legitimacy, and their authority in the 20th. And the 20th century was the heyday of I talk, you listen, top down. I'm legitimate because, you know, these sets right. of institutions that we are, because I have reached this particular place and institution, you must listen to me. In, informationally, um, it was a moment of information scarcity. These institutions possessed, each of them, a little semi-monopoly over the information in their own domains that gave them authority. What the tsunami did was blow all that away. The moment the tsunami hit, each one of those institutions, including our government and including our, our political parties, all, all our political and governmental institutions lapsed into a state of crisis. That's where we are today. It began long. I wrote the book because I, several of us were seeing this. And um, part of the effect that I think uh, this 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 uh, disorienting moment has had is a lot of the old political categories don't really make a whole lot of sense. Right. And I kept watching people talk about Republican and Democrat and conservative and liberal. These terms that honestly, you know, are at least uh, 19th century, some of them are 18th century. Um, and while they broad brush explain some things, they completely miss the big, the big divide uh, of our moment, which I think is between a public that used to be a silent audience and now is vociferous, is very loud and, and, and very angry. And the elites who are still clinging to these old 20th century type institutions are, and are terribly demoralized uh, and and uh, don't particularly care much uh, about the public. You have a feeling that if they could disband the public and summon a whole new version of it that was a little more obedient, that they would do it in a second. So there seems to be two choices if you're looking at this you, you you see how the elites are kind of now banding together because they kind of all need each other i feel like it's you know uh king louis and they learn their lesson don't say let them eat cake until you have all of the reinforcements and the fences up but screw the public we've got our own little world and we do not want it to change um, it and it is it's been fed for a long time by electing people and they don't really do what they say they're going to do. Now we have this ability to connect with one another, to network with one another, to see that we're not alone. It's not just us that feels this way or me that just feels this way. There's a lot of people. And so what's seemingly happening is. What might have started out as, hey, hope and change or the Tea Party, hey, we want to we want some some restraint here on our government has now turned into burn it all down or total control. Yeah, I, I don't see anybody asking for total control. And I think the elites that would love to have total control, yes. but are are far from it, are far from it. And, and every day, I think. If you inhabit their heads and read their writings, uh, you realize that these are people who are very scared and, and they know that, that the world is slipping from them. They are not adapted to the digital era. Their institutions are totally maladapted mm -hmm. to it. Uh, and then they're, they're watching outside their windows and there are all these people out there yelling and screaming and they're going, who are they? Why are they there? What can I do? And there are no real answers. Um, I, I think... I think there are um, 
you know, two sides to this issue. I, I started writing the book thinking that I had a side, that I, I was a member of the public, so I, I felt like that was my side. Mm. But honestly, the public has its own pathologies, all right? Um, the public, and I'm talking globally now, um, I know we love to talk about the United States as if there was no world, but this actually happens all over the world. Everywhere. Uh, and in fact, began, the, the first manifestations were not in the United States. Mm-hmm. But the public is not one. It's many. It's fractured. It's the old passive mass audience, which was like, I always like to say, a gigantic mirror. I mean, I'm an old guy. I remember those days, right? Where we all saw ourselves reflected. Uh, We all bought the same cars. We all watched the same TV show. Mm -hmm. They were all work. That mirror has toppled and fallen and shattered. And the the public that lives in all the broken pieces... And they're mutually hostile. They, they don't like each other much. Even you know, within what is considered to be the, the right wing, the conservative side, the Republican side, the, the left wing, the Democratic side, progressive side, the people inside those groups hate each other almost more than they hate the other side, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you mo- unify and mobilize them? Well, the one unifying force, both sides, everywhere, is they absolutely loathed the established order, the system. So everything is kind of focused against. You can't, the second you say, well, let's be for this thing or for that, let's have a little program about this, the, the public disintegrates into its component parts. So to get it mobilized, you need to be against. Now, if you are against, if you repudiate, if you negate, and you don't provide an alternative, in yeah. the end that becomes nihilism, right? Which is the belief that destruction is a form of progress. So that has been a mantra of mine since hope and change. I, I felt the same way as many people who were voting for Obama felt. I wanted change of the system. I wanted hope and belief in something. I didn't vote for him, but I, I, I thought that was such an effective thing. But the thing I kept asking was change to what? And no one is providing that. So that is the answer of why we're not hearing any new solutions, because there is nothing to unite on. Well, the smart politicians will give you just that. They will say something that sounds like it has content in it. But when you start... um, you know, analyzing a little bit, you realize that, well, this, this could fit almost anything, right? You know, so you could have hope and change. And that's a very good one. And mm-hmm. it got Obama elected. Or you could say, make America great again. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, what does that mean? I mean you could you, right. could, you, you could put any kind of content into that, that little slogan. Um, I think, therefore, when they are, are elected, um, two things happen. They feel like they've escaped because they got elected without actually pr- promising a program. But actually, the opposite is the case for the public. The public listens to these slogans and builds up these enormous expectations of make America great again, hope and change. And it's almost impossible for these politicians to deliver on those. So mm-hmm. I think... I, I don't want to make this about politics at all. Um, but yeah. I, I, if you're going to do it, I'd prefer that you do it to both sides because I don't yeah. want you to... I think you did a really good job in your book of not playing politics, but you do excoriate uh, hope and change. You do excoriate uh, President uh, uh, Obama. Uh, and, that, and in fairness, this was written before Donald Trump, and I'm sure you can excoriate him. Uh, but can you can you go on why that was important to put in the book? Yeah, I mean, I honestly didn't consider it excoriating, and you're 100% right. I I am an analyst, and if you can tell what my political opinions are, then I probably failed you, all right? So I I thought that Obama, I think that the public as a whole in these digital networks uh, has what I call a sectarian mindset. The sectarian mindset is very defined. Sociologists have talked about this. It was very egalitarian. Uh, it doesn't accept leaders. It doesn't accept programs. It stands against the center, the, 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 the mm-hmm. institutions, which are considered sinful, right? And rather than provide an alternative in terms of programs, they model behavior. In other words, I am in my virtuous behavior 
countering this, this sinful world, right? And that is what you get from a lot of these protests and a lot of these movements. And I think President Obama was the first sectarian in powers of his sectarian office, all right? You could, and, and I found that fascinating. It was just a product of my research. I mean, I, I started reading his speeches and I was just amazed. Your typical American president, almost invariably, every American president up to that moment was supposed to be a man of action who said, this is what's wrong, there's a problem, and I don't have the solution, I'm gonna fix it. Um, President Obama, after he lost his governing majority in, I guess it was 2010, mm -hmm. um, resumed what I think was his actual natural state, which he was like a, a prophet in the wilderness who, who was kind of like a, a accuser in chief, right? He would point, to, for example, economic inequality, give a long speech about economic inequality, how terrible it was in America, even in comparison with third world countries, it was bad. And he would, that was it. That, that was all you heard. Uh, no solutions, no fixes. Uh, now many of the fixes in the olden days were bogus. So maybe it's better if you don't have a fix not to say it, but that was not what he was interested in. He was interested in being mm. present. He presided over the, con the country, and yet he rejected the system over which he was presiding. He was telling us all the time how that system was corrupt and unjust. And right? Trump did the same thing. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I don't give myself credit for much, but I watched Obama, and I wrote in the book, I said, he was so successful at this, there's bound to be imitators. Yeah. Um, people, people, you know, blame Trump on a lot of things. You know, the reason why Donald Trump came to his X, Y, Z, I think it was a lot of things that brought Donald Trump to it. But the, the one thing that surprised me, um, listening to people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 was the burn it all down kind of thing that it was a, we have tried to work within the system, the system is so far gone, burn it down. And that's what you're hearing now. And you go into nihilism a lot. Can you explain, yes. for instance, is nihilism what we saw on January 6th at the Capitol? Is it what we saw um, over the summer, the summer of love, uh, which is oddly titled? Uh, is it both? Is it more? What is nihilism? I mean, the ultimate expression of nihilism today is when a person picks up a gun and walks into a room full of innocent strangers and starts shooting them. Right. Sometimes for sometimes for a reason, because they are, you know, uh, jihadis or because they are white supremacists. Sometimes for no reason at all, because you represent a, an impure society and I, I, I am an exterminating angel, all right? I am the, the, the internet rant made flesh and I'm going to exterminate you. You know, these are the, basically when you read these, these people who do these terrible things online, they sound just like everybody else online. They're ranters, except mm -hmm. these people actually take it a further step. I think institutionally, um, when you start bashing at our existing institutions, which, it, like I said before, have many reasons to be criticized, but don't offer a solution or, or alternative, um, then you are engaging in essentially a nihilistic exercise, whether you're a nihilist or not. Um, I think the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement and, and the crazy QAnon people on January 6th have a lot more in common that it's, that it's given credit for. I These agree. are. They were basically angry. They basically wanted change. They had no idea inside their heads what that change would be. And then they had no organization, no leaders, no programs. So that, and that moment when they said, I mean, Black Lives Matter, they took over uh, a couple of autonomous zones out west. And and uh, the, the protesters of January 6th, you know, basically violated the Capitol building. Um, but once you do that, it's like you can see you know, the deer in the headlights is like, now what? And then what the what is, they kind of model their superiority and then they go away because they have nothing, nothing to offer. So I have described this in the past and I'd like you to correct me. Show me what, where I have this wrong. Um, I've described the, the climate in America that there is, if you look at a football field from the five yard line, uh, maybe 10 yard line of each each end zone 
there are these absolutely bat crap crazy people who just are they're just angry and they don't care what happens next they just want an end to this then you have everybody else kind of you know in the 40 you know yard line that is like no you know this is all kind of good i i agree it's not working but you know let's let's not be crazy here but everyone is focusing attention on those two end zones and so they're controlling uh, they're 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 pushing us into into a place that the rest of the public doesn't really want to go is that accurate or, or is the the people in the center are they nihilistic now too uh, that's a really hard question that's a really hard question and, and I, I, I I'll, I'll say a couple of things about it um, number one the the um, I think the football metaphor is wrong because we're all kind of crunched together um, and but I think essentially um, the anger is structural in other words, in our information environment, in this tsunami that I'm talking about, in this blizzard of voices, right? Mm-hmm. If you are the calm, moderating force, and you say the reasonable things, pff, you have no audience. Nothing. Right? So if you want to have an audience, the first thing you're going to do is scream. The, the second thing you want to do is scream angrily. The third thing, and that's where you make the breakthrough, right, is you find somebody on the other side that's now screaming at you. And now the screaming match begins, and then the people on your side start to line up behind you because now the other guys are attacking you. And suddenly you build a following and you become somebody, right? Um, that's structurally how you get attention in, in this environment. So there's a structural side to it. Um I, I, where the public stands, the actual majority of the public, that's a really interesting question, and it's hard to get at. There are a lot of people who are intermittently angry, I think, um, but when, when we talk about, for example, political polarization, which I keep getting thrown at me as, as, as the defining uh, way to, to, um, to look at our, our, our political environment, um, it makes no sense to think that. I mean, Gallup just came out with a poll that said that 50% of Americans identify as independents, a record number. Mm-hmm. How is that polarizing between parties, right? Right. Another poll, another poll and I forget who did it, uh, also record number saying they wanted a third party. So how is that polarized between Republican and Democrat? Mm-hmm. So I think I think there are part of what we're dealing with is the dysfunction of our information environment. Part of it is the dysfunction of the institutions, the fact that at the top of our institutions it really is everybody kind of glomming together and trying to say, well, it's my side or, 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 or nothing, right? Um, but uh, where the actual majority of the public stands, honest, Glenn, I, if, if you ask me my gut feeling, I would agree with you. I would agree. People just want to live on their lives. Yeah. They, they're really... They're not really interested in getting into these um, uh, scrums. I, uh, where- I was in Israel and I, t- I spent time with Jews. I spent time with Palestinians. And what I heard from both sides when the cameras were off and when people were alone. Yeah. I just want my kids to have a safe school. I just I just want to I want to be with my family. And I realized yeah. when the cameras are off, everybody yeah. wants the same thing. Yeah. And I and I think that's true about most of America, but we are that's, I, I, that's I, hard to get at. Go ahead. Hard to get at empirically. Hard hard to get data on that. Right. But I do have I do have a little incident which you kind of uh, kind of sealed that in my head. You know, I was writing I was one of these um, back and forth uh, that get published online where they somebody publishes something and you respond. And it was, it was all about how we're in an incipient civil war and our politics have become warlike and ter- and you know, I'm sitting here in front of my laptop, right above that is my window, and as I'm reading all the stuff about war, I'm watching right. my neighbors right walk around social distancing, waving at one another, and I'm thinking, Well, I'm not seeing it. I don't see civil war, okay? Right. And, I think also one last thing is most people don't ingest massive amounts of news, and that's probably healthy. I think those of us who who ingest too many news uh, tend to have a very distorted idea of how important even politics are. Okay, I think most American hmm. lives 
live uh, very detached from politics and its family and its church and its community and you know its sports league and it's many things other than yeah. uh, who, who passed the latest law that, that you didn't like or that you were right. advocating or whatever. Uh, I, uh, I will tell you, I have the same feeling when I'm at work. I feel one way when I'm anywhere else in the country, except for the coast or the power centers. I, I see people getting along. Everybody is fine. Everybody is kind of back to, yeah, I don't agree with that person, but that's, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, one thing that is, is, uh, however, I think a frightening sign is the cancel culture that is happening right now how does this fit into your theories what what what's happening there because when i said well, I mean, it's one side wants total control there is one side and i don't even know where it belongs but there is one side that's like my way or the highway yeah i um basically uh, it's as as much a generational thing as anything Uh, but I mean I think you have in the internet um, a lot of identity and stability the the internet is, is, is a mangler of identity okay you have to sort of your organic you the person that you're looking at right here I have to mangle myself if I want to join Wall Street bets, or if I want to join mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, if I want to join mm-hmm. all the. You basically have to 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 join hands with a digital them. You have to mutilate yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And that creates all kinds of uncertainties and and doubts and and uh, and the more you do that, the more it gets confusing. What pronoun do you use? What's the right word? What should I avoid? And and the more that that happens, I think somebody is going to step up and decide. Well. I'm the Inquisitioner, right? And I'm gonna gain. I'm gonna gain power of a sort by canceling you, right? By by saying you said the wrong word, or you used the wrong pronoun, or you don't get it right. Or, so, and and it becomes very intense and very very um, dogmatic. Uh, even though we're talking about trivial things, I honestly don't think it's. I mean, it's important if you belong to that generation. I guess to an old geezer like me is much less important. I mean, you can cancel me twenty times from Sunday, and I don't care, you know. <laughs> but but if you but if you're young, it does matter. And I think what you have is a generation. You know, this Zoomer generation that's coming up. It's a generation of conformists who who basically keep their nose to the grindstone because they they're afraid that if they just lift up their heads and say the wrong thing, they're gonna get canceled. So did I misunderstand some of the direction of the book? Um, Because you talked about uh, the media uh, scrambling to try to keep control of things and seeing that Facebook and all of this stuff has unleashed people to make their own networks. And and it's the networks that they're afraid of. And, And as I read that, I'm looking at what Google is doing. I'm looking at what these algorithms are starting to do to if you say something that is deemed hateful, it's not just you, but they look then at everyone who is liking you, following you, reading you, posting with you. And they are they're squashing those voices as much as they can. And you talk about this in the book about a a 15 percent I can't remember what you called it, uh, dilution or or something that they they're squashing these networks and these voices. Can you go into that? Because maybe I misunderstood it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we happen to be every action has reaction. Right. So we've spent 10 years of the revolt of the public. And I think certainly here in the United States, this is a moment of reaction. The elites are trying to reassert themselves. They elected Joe Biden, who is. Basically, that was his one qualification. He was an old elite uh, and he was safe. Um, And they now want to turn uh, the great digital platforms into the front page of the New York Times circa 1980. Um, The thing is, it can't be done. It cannot be done. Uh, It basically, um, they're trying 20th century information control techniques. But it, it works in China. No, it doesn't. 
No, it doesn't. The Chinese public knows everything mm. that it wants. All right. Uh, now they keep their heads low and they don't say much. Right. They can get any person determined to get information in China can get it. Uh, so, no, I don't think it does. Okay. You cannot cancel the information tsunami. I think that the elites would love to do that somehow to just have kind of, okay, let's go back to the way things were. We right. get to write. With to write little articles to each other, and they show up in the New York Times op-ed, and and we read the front page for the the informational news, and uh, that is never going to happen. And I think I think honestly, um, it, it'll be interesting to watch this moment of reaction. It'll be interesting to see how far that can go, but there will be a lot of pushback. There already has been a lot of pushback. I think honestly, the um, the big platforms know that there's a new sheriff in town and you know, the new administration and they're they're playing up to it right they, they know they are they have been threatened with all kinds of um you know antitrust action and so forth uh by by government and they're playing up to the new the new sheriff in town we'll see what's going on a year or two down the road so tell me about the media itself because that's what you used to you know that was your job at the cia so let's talk yeah. about american media here and it's bias or it's direction or or what's happening with the the old guard because the new york times itself is not even what the new york times used to be it's no. changed direction so what what's happening there and what does that mean for the future of that those quote trusted sources as as uh, social media would name them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the New York Times, here's the thing about the news business that most people don't realize. Nobody ever made a penny selling news, okay? That just mm -hmm. never happened. Right. Not before, not now. In the olden days, the news, if you're a newspaper, but also the sports page, the comics, the advice of the love lord, mm -hmm. the crossword puzzle, all those things bought you a bunch of eyeballs, a, lot of, a, lot, a big audience. And you sold that audience to advertisers, right? So that was the old model. Um, the digital tsunami destroyed that. All the advertisers moved online and right. they're never coming back. Right. That's pretty much the extinction of almost every newspaper that ever was. There's a few though that have very prestigious names and, and, and histories like, like the Times and the Washington Post. And they have tried a new model. The model is they lured you, you're a digital subscriber and you're lured behind this paywall. The problem with that model is so what are you, what's your, the commodity you're selling? I mean, the world of information that is so overloaded, it's practically um, an infinite amount of information for practical purposes. The news chases you, Glenn. You're, you're the old days when I was a young kid, you have to keep up with the news. Right. The news is trying the news is, you can't bat it away. It's coming at you whether you want to or not, right? So why on earth would you pay money to go into this little magical garden of news that is the New York Times behind a paywall, right? I think accidentally uh, during the 2016 uh, elections, they hit on a, on a new business model. And that business model was, well, we're not selling news and we're not selling uh, eyeballs to advertisers. We're selling a creed. We're selling, right. basically, we're selling polarization. We're selling anger, right? You who, who and that Trump, of course, was was the, the great object of this. You who are terrified of Trump, come within our little garden of news. We will give you good words to use. We'll give you good arguments to use. You're like a congregation inside the church of anti-Trump. We all believe in the same thing. They were selling that creed. Well, I mean, it was amazingly successful. Um, before Trump, the New York Times uh, uh, digital subscriptions were hovering flat below one million. Uh, it doubled in a year. By 2016, it was six million, which is the most in wow. the world. So um, they basically have an ideolo an open ideological posture with kind of like a hidden um, business agenda. Uh, now, now comes the moment of truth, though. I mean, let's face it. Trump, I believe, was was a a call, uh, uh, an effect, not a cause of, of this strange yeah. information. Big time. But, but he was, but he was 
I think, I mean, he had, he sold, let's put it that way. He was an outrageous personality. He was a showman. He was a showtime. Yeah. So he's gone. And you have possibly the most bar- boring politician in my lifetime as president, Joe Biden, all right? The opposite of all that excitement that you had with Trump. Can the New York Times survive and maintain uh, that growth under those conditions? Wait and see. Um, when you... When you look at what they're saying now in Washington about there is this vast right wing white supremacist terror movement out there um, and at the same time, you know, calling it the summer of love when horrible riots were going on, um, what can, can talk about that a bit? What what what? What does this tell you? And what's really going on? Well, each side sees a moat in its own eye and a beam in the eye of its opponents, right? Uh, I think uh, people who are uh, to the left of the spectrum see white supremacists everywhere. People who are to the right of the spectrum see Antifas everywhere. Um, I think that's to some extent, uh, they're sincere, I'm sure, but also self-serving because then you can pass laws and, and you can generate that anger. In other words, it's much easier to um, to find yourself railing about white supremacists or Antifas uh, than it is to talk about some boring politician in the Senate or something like that. So you want to portray the other side as the most extreme possible version of it. Some of it is true. Much of it is imaginary. A lot of it is just political posturing, I think. Um, talk to me about um, the fifth wave, because you talk about that in yes. the book a lot. Explain the fifth wave. Well, I mean, it is a fact that information uh, determines, as I said before, the, 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 the stage setting of society. So a lot of our behavior depends on that. And also that it has not, as one might imagine, um, information has not increased uh, in an even flow. It comes in these waves or pulses. And with each one, you see how society arranges itself. You know, so with the invention of writing, you had these societies that were ruled by mandarins and, and priests, like like the right. Egypt or China. The classical republics, you needed the alphabet for. You could mm-hmm. not have to have the alphabet. Um, the, the printing press was, by the way, possibly the most destructive and and uh, um, disorienting of all, including so far the Internet. Uh, you couldn't have including, had, say, including the yeah, Internet. Yes. Oh, yes. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute if you want. Uh, you couldn't have had the scientific revolution. You couldn't have had the American Revolution. Right. You wouldn't have the French Revolution. All these things that determine our life today without the printing press. That's the third wave. The fourth wave was that top-down mass media that I actually got to experience when I was a young person where, uh, you know, we were all kind of brought into the, the, the information environment, but in a very... Uh, authority-driven way. In other words, you weren't participating, you were just being told. Mm-hmm. And the fifth wave is is that tsunami, that digital, that digital madness that, that occurred around the turn of the century that is still very early on, and we don't really know um, what, what it's, it may in the end be more disruptive than the printing press, but the printing press in its day was, was horrific, horrific. And my friend- what, you, mean, you mean for the, for the hierarchy? For the for society as it was structured, right. I mean, my friend uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, uh, smartest man on Twitter, by the way, mm. um, says, "If you, the, you know, just a, a, a thought exercise, if you went to the Thirty Years' War, right, and that was the the bloodiest war that had ever been experienced in Europe, millions died." took generations for the population of Germany uh, to uh, reconstitute itself. And the war was fought over tiny little uh, religious differences. You know, your book had 10 words that my book didn't have, and my book had many words that you should have had. And over these tiny differences that were very clear and crisp in those books, uh, people slaughtered one another. If you went to that time and said, what do you think of the printing press? People would have said, it's the most horrible and, and destabilizing and destructive mm. invention 
invention of our times, right? It was the early moment. Um, so um, we now know that the printing press, in my opinion anyway, it was the most liberating uh, invention ever. Uh, and it may turn out to be that 50 years from now, we say, oh, the internet, that was a great stabilizing, uh, uh, liberating uh, technology. Right now, Let's be thankful. We're not in a 30 years war. We're not slaughtering one another. But the, uh, but the but printing press was the same kind of thing. It wasn't necessarily the people that were arguing over that. It was the power structures that were arguing over that. It was the kings and the churches that were fighting for a, a their old world or the new world order of the time. Who would dominate whom? It wasn't. I'll bet you you could go back in those those times of war, and the most of the people were like, "I don't want this anymore. I just wish this would stop." Well, that was to some extent true. I think to some extent not. I mean, I don't know the period one hundred percent well, but I know for a fact that there was there were truly sectarian forces that were unleashed. In other words, small groups that suddenly decided, no, 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 we really know, and uh, and they would go on the war path, and, and and the horrible things would happen. And yes, there there was a lot of then the you know the powers that be would try and squelch them. But what was happening in Germany in particular was as much people suddenly feeling empowered because here I have this book. I can now read and I have this book and the book tells me exactly what is right. And th those people over there, their book is wrong. And then we, we just have to get rid of them. It, 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 it's a, I mean, when it's a question of, of heaven and earth, right? It's a question of God and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and Satan. There's no compromise to be had. Uh, and, and there wasn't. There wasn't. So I think it was a, a terrible moment that was as much... Um, a question of the public participating as it was of the powers that be then coming in and trying to establish order violently. So is the diminishment of religion a good thing or a bad thing to settle things down? I mean, I would imagine if you're looking at the world that way, you would say it was the sex of religion that that really kind of edged you know egg that on and made things much worse is is this part of the breaking up of networks or quieting of networks or is this just what we're going through right now uh, this diminishment in you know in in our in our faith and our churches is that just part of the natural that hierarchy doesn't work anymore well, I mean, I think that, that question can only be answered contextually, right? I mean, I think if you are slaughtering one another over religion, my um, liberal democracy emerged from that Correct. as sort of like an arbiter that said, no, no, there are many paths to salvation. There's not just one, and you don't need to kill everybody else. So. Liberal democracy is kind of a procedural, kind of prosaic. We manage all the different points of view. There are limits. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, so religion, in that case, needed to be managed out of fanaticism. I think where we are today is an entirely different context. And, and I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot later, lately, um, Glenn, which is not just religion, but, okay, what? Where do people get their meaning? Where do people get their sense of right. dignity and importance? You know, well, they get it from family. That's in trouble. They get it from community. That you know, you look at the old Masonic lodges and the yep, chambers of commerce. Gone. They're, they're gone. You know, and they get it from religion and attendance is is, is in tremendous decline. Right. So. A lot of what is happening today, and this is again very hard to prove empirically, but. I have a very strong sense that this is true, um, is people trying to find meaning in politics, yes. which cannot possibly, cannot possibly deliver. So the well, anger I think, is I, like, I, I think the critical race theory, you know, the social justice warriors, the ecological war, warriors, that has become almost a religion. And I think people are, and, and they will find it very, very empty, which will only lead to more bad things. But it is becoming a religion, you know? I think many, many, many of these online groups and many of these academic, you know, fantasies like the ones you mentioned are are uh, religion-like, yes. Uh, and, and I think none of them, none of them, 
can deliver what what um, what people are seeking from them, which right. is okay. And I think in the olden days, by the way, uh, when um, people got their sense of who they were, you know, I mean, if you were in a Masonic lodge or in a sports league, you were kind of like a big frog in a tiny little pond, right? Mm-hmm. You feel important. And and if you had religion, you had consolation, and you had you had guide, moral guidance, uh, so that when politics, particularly national politics, came up for discussion, your your sense of self, your sense of who you were, was not remotely touched by that. So you could engage in in uh, compromises because the stakes were pretty small, right? I think the problem today, when you, when society is kind of hollow, and when you are sort of told that you are you, you're supposed to express yourself and attain some sort of uh, self-expressive you know height uh, and yet it's unclear how that's ever going to happen without any meaning inside your life um, then you will put a lot of burden of expectations on a very slender read which is um, you know this the search for justice the search for political solutions for things that are um, that are way beyond the scope of politics. And if you ever look at, at um, you know, the young, the young uh, warriors of uh, the autonomous zones in, in uh, Seattle and Portland, tons and tons of uh, YouTube video, fascinating to watch. You know, they never give you, they never make demands, they never make claims, they never say you have to change this and that and the other. They basically assume the society is unjust and terrible. And then they say, well, look, Look how great this is! This moment is, you know, there's this the autonomous zone moment. They're, everybody's supporting everybody. We're all virtuous. We're all, and there's like a tiny little moment of 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 meaning in these people's lives. Yes, and it's very hard. It's very hard to let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it will constantly change as it did in the French uh, Revolution. Um, yeah, I I know you say in the book that. Uh, you're not a prophet. I, I can't tell you. Nobody can tell you how this is going to play out. And I completely agree with that. But can you give us some historic maybe comparisons at all on what are the possibilities that are lying in front of us? What are our choices in front of us and how do we navigate this? Yeah, I, I'm really not good at that. Um, I deal with it here and now. And believe me, I find it puzzling enough. But I think. I think we are, uh, okay, we are on the very early stages of a colossal transformation. And part of the reason um, I wrote the book is that I think our institutions are going to go through a tremendous reconfiguration crunch. And I, I want there to be at the end of that what there is now in terms of liberal democracy, freedom. personal rights, freedom, mm-hmm. right? Um, I am Cuban. I don't know if you know that or not. No. Uh, so before I was 10 years old, I had lived through a um, right-wing dictatorship and a left-wing dictatorship. Mm. And I am here to tell you. Um, Neither are good. <laughs> well, the worst, most dysfunctional democracy is infinitely, infinitely superior to the most effective and efficient dictatorship, yeah. all right? So I would like there to be, at the end of all this transformation, those those freedoms and, and, and those possibilities to vote out your, your, your leaders and so forth. Um, part of the reason you can't predict, honestly, is because a lot of that, there's agency involved. A lot of it is going to depend on, on you, Glenn, and on me, and on the people who are watching. We will make decisions. We will, there's a, the elites are in a sense selected by the public. And if we continue to select elites that are um, essentially reactionary, this is what we're going to get. We're going to get an explosion but it's really, from below. It's really hard, because I've thought about this a lot, that it's hard at this point because Everybody on both sides feel like it has gone so far to the edge that you I've heard this from a lot. I feel this way. If you voted for Donald Trump to change the course of this institutionalized corruption and everything else, he was perfectly suited to kick the walls in. And I think he kicked a lot of walls in that he didn't even know he was kicking in at the time. Um, and if he could be destroyed by this, 
who else could it be? And I think we're, we haven't seen the last of the, you know, you say Obama did this and then Trump was a reaction. Well, I think the Biden policies are a reaction uh, and the the co the coalition that was around uh, Biden is a direct response to uh, Trump. I think you're going to see more and more cancel culture, and that's going to drive a response even bigger on the other. At some point, you do end up with a horrible dictator. Somebody just grabs the pendulum and says it stops here. So how do we uh, how do we ratchet this down? Well, I mean, I think number one, um, I guess as a, as as an immigrant, I, I have. A tremendous belief in the the deep roots of our institutions. There is no question that the current shape, uh, the, the growth, the outward growth is burned down, but it's got deep roots. It's going to grow back. Okay. Uh, and number two, uh, I have a deep faith in the common sense of the American people. Sometimes it's more apparent than other times, <laughs> but. I, I think, as you mentioned before, as we discussed before, I think the majority of the public is probably not into let's fight to the death over immigration, let's fight to the death over, right. you know, right. basically the latest issue that has been made to be some kind of life or death struggle. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something, and, and maybe this is, I, nobody's ever accused me of being a romantic, and I don't feel like I am, but... Um, I just got my my first uh, COVID vaccine, right? And there was a line of hundreds of people uh, where I live in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia. And I mean, it was it was a remarkable moment. It was kind of like a ritual of national renewal that I felt that was it. Okay, Fairfax County has been voting Democratic for many years, but it has lots of Republicans, lots of Trumpists. None of us knew who we were in that line, all right? Right. We're basically... We were basically choosing life. Right? Right. That was real. You know, COVID, that's real life and death. Okay, And we were all of us of the same party and of the same tribe uh, on that line. And I found that just strangely moving. Um, and I think that's the American public, right? I mean, we're all, in the end, we just want to move on with life. Uh, and, and yes, if we get pressed to the wall, we'll say, well, I like Trump or I hate Trump or I'm a, a Democrat or I'm a Republican. But... We, this is not life or death. This is not. This is not what our, our identities are based on. Mostly, I think it will never come. This idea that we're on the edge of a civil war again. I look at, I look at my neighbors walking by and waving at each other. And I go, over what? Mm. Over what are we going to fight? Civil wars are Boy, fought. I hope over you're right. I really uh, hope you're right. I. I uh, I, I, go back, I go back and forth on the American people. I, you know, I've always said, trust the American people. I've always believed in Jefferson's quote, trust the American people. They're going to get it wrong, but eventually yeah. they'll get it right. Uh, but lately, I see the slippage of, of, you know, our unum, e pluribus unum, used to be the Bill of Rights. I, I don't know how many people still really believe in the Bill of Rights. And if we lose that... And then we lose everything. Right. Well, Jefferson was the guy who also talked about eternal vigilance, right? I mean, it's always a fight. Yeah. It's never easy. And this is a particularly hard moment. I am, I'm not denying that. That's what the book is about. I, am I concerned? Well, sure I am. Uh, do I think uh, short term there's going to be probably abuses and, and, and warping of democracy? Almost certainly. Long term, do I believe that it's going to emerge Possibly even more democratic than before, because that's something that the digital world makes possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm going to choose to be optimistic. Maybe it's only not you. an analytic judgment. It's not an analytic judgment. It's an act of faith. Well, I, I truly believe that it's going to be the greatest freedom mankind has ever seen, or the greatest police state authoritarianism that the world has ever seen. And it might be both. We might go to authoritarian only to have that collapse and be free at some point. Um, You know, I I don't know. Um, You um, you said at the beginning, I disagree that it'll be a 10 or 20 year that it's that it's compressed. Why do you say that? I mean, I think the Internet information 
and the rate of change is happening in a way that no one has ever experienced in all of human existence. You know, jobs and whole industries can be over overnight. Um, we are not the same country we were even 10 years ago. Definitely not 20. How long do you see this just grind happening? Well, that part of it is absolutely true. The change is accelerated, and that's demonstrable when you look at how fast innovations are being brought online. I mean, it used to take decades for something new to become accepted by the population. And when you look at things that were, you know, for example, the, the, the iPhone, for example, the smartphone, mm-hmm. how, fast that, how fast that was adopted. I always say, because I talk to young people a lot, young people are the best, right? Because their minds are, are kind of like, whoa, what's going on? Um, I tell them, I'm not going to see the end of this. I am not right. going to see. Glenn, Glenn, I'm looking at your gray hairs. You may not see the end. Yeah, I don't think right? I will. So this is going to go on for quite a while. And my parallel is the printing press. It took like 150 years for us to figure out, well, what is this thing? Well, what do we do with it? Um, and I think this may be just as long. Hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. And uh, thanks for writing the fun. book. I appreciate yeah. it. My pleasure. God bless. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people.